It's always nice to to come back after Thanksgiving weekend. It's always nice to see people are still awake after Thanksgiving weekend. Um, I had a, a wonderful time and uh, ate too much, as most of you all did. And isn't this rain just wonderful? Anywhere else in the world, they complain when it rains. In California, it's... People want to go skipping outside when it does. It's bizarre. Um, well, uh, I have the wonderful... I, I'm so excited with, with this study that we've been doing in, in Bruce Damaris' The Cross and Salvation. I feel like I've gotten the best topics um, to cover. Um, I also have some of the hardest ones to cover at the same time, too. Today we're going to be talking about the, uh, the doctrine of justification. Um, and it's it's a glorious, wonderful doctrine. It's it's a difficult doctrine, um, and yet it's not so difficult. But it, it, it's got nuances and and pieces to it that are just so so hard for us in our finite minds to grasp, grasp uh, and wrap our minds around. So. Because we're going to be delving into pretty much one of the most essential doctrines of the Christian faith, um, if you get justification wrong, you kind of have salvation wrong. Uh, so we're gonna. So let's go before the Lord and ask His wisdom in all of this. Heavenly Father, thank you for this glorious Thanksgiving weekend that you've given us. Time to reflect upon your goodness to us all the blessings we've received, and just the, the hope that we have through Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can continue in that, that mindset, that heartfelt thanks to you as we gather together, and we can corporately come together to learn more about you, the way you're working in the world, to understand your word and how you've prescribed us to live in this world. And we give you thanks that you have given us a hope beyond this world. We thank you that that you have gone before us. And as we deal with this immense, broad topic of justification, we pray that you would give us sound mind and clarity. Father, may... What I teach not be a distraction, but um, may you guard my words so as not to discredit the beautiful work that you've done. Father, thank you for our time together. We pray that you will be honored and your name glorified in our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, If you're with us for the first time, I don't think anyone is, but just in case, we've been going through the cross and salvation, the doctrine of salvation by Bruce Damarist. If you are part of BTI, you have read portions of this, if not all of it. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, the doctrine of justification, really, we can begin by asking the question, um, Bildad asked Job, and posed a crucial question, and this is kind of how how we can kind of think about justification. Bildad asks Job in Job twenty five, "How then can a man be righteous before God? How can one born of woman be pure?" And that is what the doctrine of justification answers. Is that question? The doctrine of justification deals with the fundamental issue of how a guilty sinner can be acquitted and restored to favor with an infinitely righteous and just and holy God. The Reformation uh, and Protestantism regards the doc- doctrine of justification by faith as a crucial article of the Christian religion, which upon the gospel stands and falls. And this is the, the doctrine of justification is what separates us from a lot of the cults and and all the works based um, uh, other religions in the world. One leading authority correctly describes the just, doctor, doctrine of justification as the chief doctrine of Christianity and the chief point of difference separating Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. So if you don't think it's important, it is. 
Although some, such as Dale Moody, view justification as a doctrine reeking of Jewish legalism. So people, there are some that don't like this doctrine because they say it leads us to legalism. Um, and, and that, that law that, that the Jews were, were held to, and it holds us to that. Um, a number of problems cluster around the biblical doctrine of justification. Fundamentally, is justification an instantaneous event that happens to sinners? Or is it an ongoing process in the lives of a professing Christian? That's one question people have. If the latter, is justification merely another name for sanctification or moral improvement? Um, if it's the former, is justification a matter of resorting, uh, restoring a person to fellowship with God without regard to any legal categories? Um, a crucial issue is whether justification is the event by which God objectively declares a person righteous or by which he subjectively makes a person righteous. In addition, can a person contribute to their own justification as Roman Catholics and many other cults and religions traditionally believe and affirm? So that's just the introduction. (laughs) There's six primary historical interpretations of justification. I'll go through the first five, which we as a church do not hold to and largely evangelical world does not, but I think it's good to have an understanding of where other people are lining up. Um, You have Pelagians and liberals, um, in their view of justification and reconciliation, um, they have what's called the process of moral improvement, is their view of justification. This religious tradition displays a naive theological optimism. They live in this fairy tale land of theology. It alleges that God is a God of love, not wrath, and that the souls of non-Christians are inherently upright and good. Moreover, God's relation to people is not that of a stern lawgiver and judge who exacts demands of, of the law, but of a loving father who seeks rehabilitation of his prodigal children. Know anyone who thinks like that? Yeah, <laughs> that's right, Anne. Yeah, it's just so no one is wrong. God's really just kind of more the, I mean, he loves everyone. Don't worry what you've done wrong. That's that's basically the idea here. The liberal tradition thus replaces the Reformation doctrine of justification by grace through faith with an agenda of justification by your own personal virtue. Because um, you're a good person. Justification, according to Pelagius, the one for whom Pelagianism is named after, involves persons overcoming sinful habits, pursuing noble ethical goals, and fulfilling God's law. Pelagius claimed that people are capable of realizing their own justification, and many, in fact, do so. So he's saying you can earn your own justification. That's a scary place to be. Um, One liberal theologian describes it saying, justification is the divine approval of positive human responses to the divine lure, optimally displayed in Jesus. That leads not to the vanquishing of lovelessness, the overcoming of estrangement and personal transformation. So the whole process of justification according to the Pelagius and liberals is what? Become a good person. Be good in society. And we all hold hands and sing kumbaya together. Um, That is the process of moral improvement. Um, A second one is the infusion of righteousness. This is the Roman Catholic's view of justification. They view justification as a process involving both the inception and the increase of justification. The inception, what they mean by that is God through Christ and his merits and via the sacrament of baptism, so getting dunked in water, remits you of past sins and then infuses into your soul new habits of grace. 
I thought you just got wet and it was a symbol of something. But no, for them, it's it, it takes away your sin and it infuses into your soul new habits of grace. Roman Catholics insist that imputed righteousness would under, undermine moral effect, uh, uh, moral effort. So they say, because if we believe that righteousness is imputed to us, we no longer have to worry about being moral. That's what they say. The, so they believe the inception and the increase saying uh, of of justification. The increase is the baptized work of eternal life by means of love-inspiring virtues that are the fruit of the grace infused into the soul. Justification is not a once-for-all event, according to the Roman Catholics. Righteousness increases and decreases proportional to a person's faith and works. So, you're having a good day? you got good justification. You're having a bad day? Sorry, you're out of luck. You hope you don't die that day, basically. Um, rest, uh, the third view, hold by many Arminians and, uh, and others, is the restoration of the moral order of the universe, which says justification is the forgiveness of sins that enhances God's wise governance in the universe. Um, Armenians generally believe that obstacles to reconciliation reside on the side of sinners rather than on the side of God. Again, there's there's a, a bit of that that leads to a works based salvation. Um, they believe that justification can be forfeited by your willful sin. Thus, certainty of final justification is impossible. So again, this is if I'm not going to be if if I sin too egregiously or too willfully, my justification gets removed from me. That's, that's what they say. Um, Charles Finney, one of the more popular Arminians uh, who died in 1875, viewed justification from a governmental rather than a judicial perspective, believing that to uphold the moral order of the universe, God substituted Christ's death for the punishment required by the law. So Christ's death was only a substitute. It wasn't a final payment. It didn't fully, it was just kind of a gloss over um, belief. Um, Charles Finney, unfortunately, was wrong. (laughs) Um, uh, A fourth view is the political and social emancipation or liberation theology. Uh, Liberation theology theology views salvation. Uh, First, Corporately rather than individually. Uh, secondly, structurally rather than spiritually. Um, thirdly, it, it focuses salvation as this worldly. It's on a horizontal basis rather than otherworldly um, between God and man. Um, the tradition, this tradition of political and social emancipation makes political and social liberation in history, the focus of salvation and spiritual and eternal concerns, um, subservient to uh, uh, there, there too. So in other words, it's a social gospel is what it is. It's saying the way we are justified in liberation theology is as a corporate body, we're going to go build wells in Africa. And, and that is how we get justified. Um, and, and that's the way it plays itself out. We're going to go down to, to Nicaragua and build homes for, for the less fortunate. That is, so everything is done. So justification is simply, uh, I'm going to be justified now between my brothers and sisters and, and other people on this earth. It has nothing to do with focusing people and restoring a relationship to God. It's more restoring a a relationship between man. Um, Fifthly, uh, the neo-Orthodox, who Karl Barth uh, is the kind of the forefront of that. Uh, Their view is God's eternal verdict on humankind. This is close to what um, where we would stand, but it just misses the mark a little bit. Justification here represents God's affirmation and consummation of the institution of the covenant between himself and man, which took place in and with the creation. That's what Karl Barth said. I'll read it again because it's wordy. (laughs) He says, Justification represents God's affirmation and consummation of the institution 
of the covenant between himself and man, which took place in and with the creation. In other words, justification is that decision that God made regarding humankind before the world began, but given historical expression through the experience of Jesus Christ. Um, Through Jesus' death, God said no to himself, and, and through Christ's resurrection, then God said yes to humanity. Is what he says, thereby putting an end to sin and condemnation. So um, there's a a little bit of a replacement going on there. Um, God's denying himself and his law through Jesus Christ. So that's where we would separate with Karl Barth. God does not deny himself (laughs) um, in in any of this. Um, This is... Uh, the final one is God's legal declaration. And this is where we as, as, as evangelicals, as Protestants, as, as reformed, um, people would hold. It's God's legal declaration. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of history in church history that talks about where you have the church fathers talking about it. Primarily, it wasn't an issue for them. Um, they understood it. They didn't question God as making a legal declaration of us being righteous. Um, they were more concerned at that point of, of guarding the, the sanctity of, of Jesus as being God and man, fully God, fully man. They were worried about the Godhead, the Trinity, other things that were attacking. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of them writing about justification because it simply was not a controversy with the early church fathers. Not until Martin Luther uh, Martin Luther um, was the forensic, uh, he brought about a, a forensic interpretation of justification and developed it in detail because that's where he saw the church had drifted over 1,500 years. Justification, he said, or he, he noted, was as God's judicial declaration whereby for the sake of Christ, God freely pardons sin and reckons reckons believers as righteous and worthy of eternal life. So all of a sudden, man has been declared completely righteous, and all his sin is pardoned, and now is worthy of eternal life. But it is all through Jesus Christ. It's not through any works. It's not through any any anything that the individual does it is simply the work of christ justification is distinct from salvation in that it involves a change in the believer standing before god rather than uh, a change in the nature of the person sanctification is is that growing in, in in more into christ likeness each and every day whereas justification is your standing changed the moment you were saved you're not progressing in that. You don't have to continue to earn to stand in that place. It's done once and for all. Justification, moreover, is an instantaneous event rather than a lifelong process of continual renewal and, and of both morally and spiritually. Are we kind of all on the same page figuring out this? If you have questions... Ask Mark. Um. <laughs> um, so what is the doctrine of, of justification? We're gonna, now we're going to kind of, we've looked at what some of the other views have and have said. Well, let's look into what the problem of sanctifi- or justification is. Um, you have to kind of start with that first question that Bildad asked at the very beginning when we started concerning how fallen and, and alienated persons could be made right with God. Um, the obstacles to God acquitting and restoring guilty rebels, such as us, to a, a right relationship with him, chiefly can be broken down into three main parts. The three main parts are our humanity's sinful condition, the holy and righteous character of God, and the intransi- intransigent moral law. I always have trouble saying that word. It's, it's like inalienable. It's just one that doesn't come off my tongue. Um, so humanity's sinful condition, the holy and righteous character of God, and the intransigent moral law are the three ways we can break down uh, 
justification. Humanity's sinful condition. Before salvation, what were you? You were a sinner. You were lost. You were radically, you were radically a sinner. Um, you weren't just a passive sinner. Um, you were a radical sinner by nature. Inherited from who? From Adam. We're all in it. Uh, we get that from Romans 8. We get that from Galatians 5. Um, we see that that man is radically sinful from its core. Even the precious little babies um, are radically sinful to the core. Um, we are unsaved, holistically depraved, hostile to God. And as John 8.44 calls us before salvation, he calls us what? Children of the devil. You think that you're still a good person after being called a child of the devil? Um, No, you're you're alienated from Christ. You stand guilty and condemned before the judge of the universe. Why? Because you're a filthy, rotten sinner. Fortunately, that's where we start. But that, as believers, that's not where we end up. It's wonderful. Um, because now all of a sudden you have the, the, the human, uh, humanity sinful condition that we're in here, and then you have the holy and righteous character of God. God is what? He's perfectly holy, which means what? What does it mean if God's perfectly holy? Can he dwell with sin? No. Is he completely separated from all evil, and he abhors all sin? He, he, he detests any uncleanliness. So you have us as sinful man over here. You have holy God over here. And the two cannot meet together. Because God is perfectly just. He's absolutely righteous. He is unchanging. He does not accommodate us. He, there's a problem here. He can't lower his standards to be with us. And we absolutely can't raise up to his his standard. We're so far away from that. And then you, okay, so you have humanity's sinful condition. You have the holy and righteous character of God. And then what does God have? He's got this intransigent moral law that's written on every human heart and in the scriptures. And God can't bend or rescind his moral law to suit our sinful condition. So there's a big problem here, right? There's a big problem. In some humanity's uh, sinful condition, God's perfect righteous character and the law's demands pose powerful obstacles to justification. Luther sensed that the gravity of the situation when he said on one occasion, here is a problem which God, or here's a problem which, which needs God to solve it. Because we can't. I mean, there's, there's just such this chasm. And the neat thing is, God came up with a solution. <laughs> God created it. Um, it it's such a, a wonderful thing. So you have um, this, this, this problem that is, is before us. Um, then you have the, the doctrine seedbed of, of justification. There's two major Old Testament texts uh, that, that give us the skeleton for the doctrine of, of justification. First, turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I just don't want to read it because I want you guys to see it for yourself. There's two passages we're going to look at. Genesis 15, verse 6. And this gives basically the whole idea that this is, this is a hint at the plan that God has for righteousness. Or for for justification. Genesis 15 verse 6 says this. It's a short verse, but it is so exciting. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So justification was in God's working very early on. In fact, the New Testament quotes this verse five times as the, as the, as the foundation for the justification, for justification coming solely by faith. Because what did Abraham do? 
All he did was he believed the Lord. It's only faith. He didn't do anything. He simply believed the Lord. And what did the Lord do? He credited to him as righteousness. The second one, turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. This is the second. uh, There's other passages, but these are kind of the two main ones that we see. Psalm 32 is is written um, by David after his sin with Bathsheba. And, and so he writes this, and David teaches us how God justifies repentant sinners. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Do we need to read that again? I want to. When you think of, this is after David's sin with Bathsheba. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Can you imagine David going, whoa. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. No iniquity? Do you know what I've done, Lord? I've committed adultery. I've killed the man who <laughs> to, to cover that up and, and a whole host of other things. I shouldn't have even been where I was at that time. There's a whole host. Blessed is the man against the Lord counts no iniquity. So David teaches us that how God justifies repentant sinners. These two passages, just Genesis 15 and Psalm 32, it's all what? The Lord doing it. David's not claiming he's been able to do any of this. Um, What is justification? The language and meaning, I won't get into all the Greek and Hebrew terms, but just generally, it means to be just or to be righteous. It means to be justified. Legal context means to to vindicate or, or an acquittal or to be to declare to be in the right. If you get nothing else out of anything today, here is the greatest definition I've been able to find of justification, a very clear one. In the light of biblical language and its use in context, we define justification as God's gracious legal verdict in respect to those, in respect of those who believe in Christ forgiving their sins, and declaring them righteous through the imputation of Christ's righteousness. There's a lot in there. I'll read it again. In light of biblical language and its use in context, we define justification as God's gracious legal verdict in respect to those who believe in Christ. So we are the defendant, and, and, and but we believe in Christ, so there's a legal, legal verdict. He forgives their sins and declares them righteous through the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Whew. That's exciting. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So what is the grounds and the means of justification? There's really six kind of quick points I kind of want to go over here. Um, the grounds and means of justification begins with the fact that it's not on the basis of personal worth or works. You can be the most powerful person. You can be the most um, spiritual person, according to people around. Um, you can be the most um, philanthropic person. Um, you can do the most amazing things. You can, you can be the most humble person. You can do all these things. But your justification will not be warranted or given on the basis of your personal worth or your works. So what is it based on? Secondly, it's based on the basis of Christ's merits and his merit alone. 
well, what do we gain out of that? The, we, because Christ's merit is his righteousness, all of a sudden we have, if that has been imputed to us, has been passed over to us, has been put upon us, has been given to us, has, defines us now, we are now the righteousness of God. We have the righteousness of God. Why? Because there is a legal reckoning that Christ gives us. Christ has made a legal reckoning because he has paid the penalty. He has suffered the wrath. He has taken all the punishment upon himself. So there is now a legal declaration of Christ upon us. And what does he call us to do? Justification comes by what? In all of that. The big word is faith. The means of your justification now is solely all of these problems, this where we were separated, this this sinful, ugly, holy, or unholy, uh, vile sinner over here, detestable, and it, it, even in opposition and, and aggressive to this holy, loving, perfect, pure, righteous, um, unstained God over here, all of a sudden, he made a way to impute his own righteousness on us. And it's only by faith. It's like mixing oil and water. (laughs) Yeah. And it's all done through faith. It's not because I could walk over here halfway. I couldn't. I was running that way. And I still, in my own humanness, am pulling that way. The key text on justification is Romans chapter 3. Turn there with me. Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 21 through 26. If, if justification is so important, the Bible is going to speak on it. And so it does. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. This is just, this is the grounds and the means of justification. This is where it all comes from. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction you're probably all familiar with this verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a what? A gift. Through the redemption that is in me? No. In Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, To be received by what? Faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Why? Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Whoa! (laughs) Those are amazing verses. I mean, we could spend all day just looking at that and go ahead and do it. Spend all day unpacking that. But that is justification in a nutshell is those five verses right there for you. So what is the result of justification? What happens as a result of all of this? We begin, I mean, the obvious one is we get forgiven. We get forgiven of all sins. David recognized that in Psalm 32. The forgiveness of all sins comes not because I was dunked, not because I walked an aisle, but I walk by faith. And I live by faith. That is where the forgiveness of sins. That is where all of a sudden this 
bridge gets smaller. And God brings me to himself because all of a sudden my sins are forgiven. I'm no longer viewed as a vile, dirty, unholy sinner because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to me. So when my sins are forgiven, what happens as a result? No longer do I live under condemnation. My sentence of condemnation, which I legally should have, is gone. It's totally gone. It, 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 it's, it's annulled. So now I no longer live in condemnation. All right, so I don't, I'm not condemned anymore because, because my sin has been forgiven, because it's been imputed, uh, because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to me. But not only am I no longer under condemnation, but now I get, according to Romans uh, chapter 3 there, the gift of eternal life. It doesn't end with just, okay, now I don't have to pay for my sin. Now I get the gift of eternal life. It's just, it's, it's, wow! And not only that, all of a sudden there's a, a spiritual peace. Or as Damaris says, he goes, or the cessation of hostilities between God and the repentant sinner. Now we are no longer at war with this holy God. It's not peace like skipping down the, the, through the tulips. This is, I'm no longer at enmity with a God who should crush me right here and right now. The hostilities between God and man have ceased for those who have put their faith in Christ. And then positionally we gain sanctification. I mean, the blood, we reap so much and we kind of, kind of have to go, why? I didn't do anything. How can I do that? How, how can this be? I didn't do anything. And yet I'm reaping all these results. And then, okay, not only have, has my, my sin been forgiven, my, my sentence of com, uh, condemnation annulled, I've been given the gift of eternal life, I'm at peace with God spiritually, I've got this sanctification positionally before him. This to me blows my mind the biggest part of it. Believers are legally now adopted into God's family. In a court of law, a person may be acquitted, but the judge of all uh, and be dropped of all charges against him. But does that acquittal in the court of law make you a member of the judge's family? <laughs> all of a sudden, in this case, adoption is that act of grace, logically fill, uh, following conversion and justification by which God now confers upon the forgiven sinner the status of sonship and daughterhood. How can that not make you just like roll over in, in, in awe? It, it, to me, it blows my mind. And and when I when I got to that point in my studying, this legal adoption idea, I go, it's great that my sins are forgiven. It's great that I'm in right standing before a holy God. Those are all such wonderful, amazing things, and I can't believe I get that. But I'm also a son now. How is that possible? No judge has ever done that. No judge has ever done that. And then there's this personal reconciliation on which side, um, God or humans, does the obstacle of personal reconciliation reside? Reconciliation has to be made between these two sides now. So who's responsible for it? Actually, the biblical perspective seems to be on both. Both the divine and the human sides. God can have no fellowship with guilty sinners and sinners are distrustful of God. 
So that reconciliation is, is necessary on both sides. Not that we can hold anything against God. In fact, all we, ha- we hold is distrust and, and a sinful heart. So what are the implications to kind of wrap things up here quick um, in a little bit? We possess an assurance of justification. The implications of the doctrine of justification by grace through faith for Christian citizen, citizenship are, are, are living and they are manifold. They are manifested everywhere. We possess this wonderful assurance of salvation. First John chapter 5 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you, know that you have eternal life. All those earlier religions and, and views of justification that we talked about earlier, none of those have an assurance that comes with it. But justification gives us this assurance. Why? Because John wrote it. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Doctrinally, this means that believers can be assured of justification and their eternal life based on Christ's deity, his atoning death, and the victorious resurrection that he had from the dead. All of that gives us this wonderful doctrinal understanding. But if we only lived in a doctrinal world, uh, we'd be a bunch of theology heads and nobody wants that. Um, Doctrinally, morally, we also um, possess assurance of salvation. Because Christians can now gain assurance of being united with Christ in a saving relationship forever as they obey God's command. So we've moved from doctrinal to also moral, where we now are united with Christ in a saving relationship. And that also then moves us to a relational standing and and a relational assurance that the saints gain assurance as they spontaneously perform loving deeds towards each other. Your justification manifests itself how you treat others. How do we know this? Because verse First uh, John also says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So you have to have the knowledge, but the knowledge has to work itself out. Morally, relationally, and then experientially. Believers gain assurance of salvation through the presence and the power of the Spirit in their hearts. And how do we know this? Because Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Isn't that just wonderful? That should put a smile on your face. And that, I mean, if, if you're not thinking about justification next Thanksgiving, there's a problem. <laughs> I mean, we're entering the Christmas season here too, and you think all of our justification came because it's uh, because God became man. It, it's, well, it started before creation, but it, culminated in the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Christ. So now we can also be delivered from any feelings of guilt, which is great. Believers may be inordinately severe on themselves. We have this tendency to to be very severe on ourselves. Um, Uh, We have a heightened sense of unworthiness now because of what God's done due to this unusually close relationship that we now have with God. All of a sudden, when when the light exposes us, it is so much more obvious, those dark, hidden corners. The closer we are to in our relationship with God, there is this, I have no right to be here. And I tell you, I feel that every Sunday... And I know everyone who teaches from this Sunday school pulpit does. I know everyone who stands, uh, I know Pastor Steve feels that. Everyone on the worship team here has that heightened sense of, I'm not worthy to do this. And I hope you feel that I'm not even worthy to be sitting in these chairs. I don't deserve this. 
and any unconfessed sins of omission and, commi- and, and commission in the believer's life, we are now delivered from all these feelings of guilt. We, because we are in Christ. His righteousness, as Jeremiah 23, 6 says, the Lord is our righteousness. He is our righteousness. And then we finally get to the cast of the burden of perfectionism. We no longer have to live as one seeking to be perfect because I'll tell you this here and now, you can't be. You in and of yourself can't be. (laughs) Jane's very relieved by that. (laughs) She's just laughing over here. I love it. Um, I I was struck by this when I was reading it. Psychologists inform us that perfectionism, the attitude and behavior pattern that seeks complete attainment of the ideal, is perhaps the most common emotional problem among evangelical Christians. God in his wisdom has endowed human image bearers with an internalized concept of the ideal or the perfect. However, this is an ideal, not an achievable reality in this life for finite human beings. Even great saints of God, such as Abraham and David, lauded in scripture as examples of those who were justified by faith, were fallible and sinful. Because of residual sin within, we will to do the good. But we often fail to realize our moral and spiritual aspirations. Consequently, those who expect perfection of other people and institutions more often than not end up discouraged and disillusioned. And those who expect perfection of themselves wind up despairing and depressed. Because ultimately, when you walk in this light of having to be perfect, you're no longer walking by faith. All of a sudden, you're moving towards a works-based justification. The fact is, according to Damarist here, that moral and religious perfectionism is not a precondition for pardon and reconciling with God. Neither is perfectionism a precondition for an ongoing relationship of intimacy with God. We have seen that no works and no virtue that we can manufacture merit acceptance with God. St. Paul's rigorous polemic against the works of the law applies to those who seek right standing with God, as well as those who seek the maintenance of that relation. We begin the new life and we continue the new life by faith in Christ, not by any effort of our own. We should understand, however, that regeneration, justification, and reconciliation inaugurate the process of Christian maturity, holiness, and sanctification. The attainable goal of the new life is growth. Get that? The attainable goal of the new life is growth into Christian perfection, not the attainable standard of perfectionism. They're different. Christians strive for the goal of Christ-like maturity, knowing that we will never attain the ideal this side of glory. That makes me long for heaven all the more. (laughs) Um, In regard to this, John Calvin commented as follows. He says, As we ourselves, when we have been engrafted in Christ, are righteous in God's sight because our iniquities are covered by Christ's sinlessness. So our works are righteousness and are thus regarded because whatever fault is otherwise in them is buried, or buried as Americans say, in Christ's purity and is not charged to our account. Accordingly, we cannot deservedly say that by faith alone, not only we ourselves but our works as well are justified. It's a long quote, and I've always been told in seminary, never use long quotes. I'm going to read it again. (laughs) Because it's it's so rich. I love it. As we ourselves, when we have been engrafted in Christ, our our righteousness in God's sight, 
because our iniquities are covered by Christ's sinlessness, so our works are righteousness and are thus regarded because whatever fault is otherwise in them is buried in Christ's purity and is not charged to our account. Accordingly, we can deservedly say that by faith alone, not only we ourselves, but our works as well are justified. Wow. What a huge, huge, wonderful, joyful thing justification is. Us who were separated from a holy God are imputed Christ's righteousness to bring us in in reconciliation with him. If you get that wrong, you've got the gospel wrong. And that's why it's an essential doctrine. One we need to pour ourselves into. And again, Romans 3, 21 through 26. Is, is, let's just end by reading that one more time. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a glorious, wonderful truth this morning we've been able to look at. We thank you that you have done marvelous things that we, your enemies, did not deserve. We thank you for Christ the price he paid on our behalf to make us right before a holy and living God. Father, help us this day to live in the light of the justification that you have given us. To live not only with the understanding that we no longer live under the condemnation of our sin, but we have also been adopted into the family of God. And if there's anyone here who has not experienced that, that assurance of being justified, Lord, may they not even make it to the next hour before dealing with you in this regard. Father, may they be able to stand in this congregation, lifting their voice in praise to a God has, who has redeemed them by his grace through faith. May this be a wonderful morning as we celebrate your incarnation, and as we study your word together. We pray that you go before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.